Hi, you're listening to the Health Disparities Podcast for Movement is Life, conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. I'm Bill Finnerfrock, and today I'm discussing health disparities and health policy issues related to disparities with Frank McClellan uh, from Movement is Life. He's on the executive committee of Movement is Life. Frank, um, tell our folks a little bit about yourself and how you came about to be involved with uh, health disparities and Movement is Life. So, Bill, I'm a uh, law professor at uh, Temple University, um, where I've taught for a number of years, since 1981. And the areas that I concentrate on our healthcare law, and uh, I teach courses on bioethics and healthcare financing and um, medical malpractice. So I've done that for years. I've also been involved in representing individuals who have uh, had bad results in the health system and um, thereby kind of explored on an individual basis some of the harms that occurred about 10 years ago. Um, I was discussing some of these issues with a social friend, uh, Dr. Jimmy Wood, uh, about health care and, and, and my perceptions of how people of color and, and women have been sort of um, the height of the wrongdoings that I had seen in practice, and also that I'd identified in studying the history of bioethics, things like the Tuskegee study, et cetera. So he, uh, as an orthopedic surgeon, uh, offered some defenses and some corrections to my view from his perspective, and we got into an argument, and then we became great friends. And so finally one day he said, I think it would be good for you and good for the organization for you to come and work with me with this group called Movement is Life that is really working to do something positive to resolve these problems of disparities. And, and it's a multidisciplinary group, and I think that you know, ad, adding a perspective like yours of a, of a legal, legally trained person would be useful. So that's how I got involved, thinking it was only going to be a, a year, and here we are almost 10 years later, I'm still involved. That's great. Now, you talked about being a, a college professor, but you've also written uh, some books, and I think you have a new book uh, coming out here soon. Tell us a little bit about that. So I'm writing a book. Uh, it's going to be published this year by Rutgers University Press, and the title is um, Healthcare and Human Dignity, uh, subtitled Law Matters. And what I'm doing in the book is, is a reflection of sort of a lifetime of work in both legal representation as well as study, is that I'm looking at individual stories and cases of people and families that I think really need to be viewed as human dignity problems, not simply medical malpractice or problems of finance, but really presenting themselves to the healthcare system or being denied access to the healthcare system in a way that really goes to the core of dignity of who they are. And through this book, I'm going, I mean, I'm expanding from the individual story to the broader policy issues that I think really impact. I'll give you just one quick example. I start out with um, these young women in my first chapter um, who were abused by the Olympic doctor. And so I use that case as a way of drawing out the fundamental themes that I'm going to discuss in a book, like the use and misuse of power and the relationship, so that here we have a situation where young women, young girls are dependent upon a doctor who is supposedly looking out for their best interests, and 
this doctor proceeds, according to the court filings and the findings, to abuse them sexually and otherwise, and they feel powerless to do something about it. And it's the way that a lot of people I've seen have felt when they have to enter into and depend upon the healthcare system. And so that's just giving you a sense of the kinds of uh, relationships that I'm concerned about. And I'm trying to look at, well, how do we control and, and advance equity on the part of individuals as well as communities of people? Here there were women. Uh, obviously there are situations where there are other groups that tend to be abused more frequently than the other or tend to be more powerless. And I think those individual stories end up being reflected in the broad statistics that we draw when we talk about health disparities. So if we look at women's health, if we look at another chapter I'm talking about, people with HIV and AIDS and how they were treated in the beginning when they first tried to come and get health care and access to the health care system so that a person could be sick, totally in need of help, and they would be denied admission to a hospital or denied admission to a dentist for reasons that, you know, that, that, that may be uh, reasonable from the perspective of that practitioner. But if you look at what their profession is supposed to be doing and the dependency of people for care, uh, it's kind of um, horrendous. So if, for example, you as a person who's ill and you're dying and the hospital administrator turns around to the other person and says, well, you're not married to them, are you? And you say, no, this is my partner. I've been there with them for 20 years. And they say, well, you can't go visit them in the hospital. We're restricting visits to people who are immediate family. You're not immediate family. Again, I'm, I'm trying to give you a sense of yeah. dignity yeah. Yeah, in, in terms of the use of power that invades dignity. And one of the things that, uh, you know, Movement is Life has uh, been involved in and, and, you know, one of the things that, that you and I have worked uh, together on is, the, is some of the policy issues and how um, policies, whether consciously or unconsciously, uh, create disparate outcomes um, and, and the health disparities. Um, one of the things that uh, some of us have talked about is the idea that, you know, payment policy isn't necessarily colorblind, for example, that... If you look in the CPT manual, it'll give you a code for an office visit, and it doesn't say, well, it's an office visit for a white person or an office visit for an African-American or Hispanic or office visit for a man or woman. It just says it's an office visit. So in that sense, you could look at it and say, well, it's colorblind. So, Bill, I think that since you're so steeped in this, why don't you explain to uh, the listeners, what a CPT code is. Well, CPT code is uh, what uh, refers to as common procedural uh, terminology, and everything that happens in a doctor's office has a, uh, a code. It's uh, either a numeric or an alphanumeric code that, that it basically says what happens. So you'll have an office visit, maybe it's a brief visit, a moderate visit with a new patient established. Each one of those has a separate code, and it's just intended to describe uh, what happens so that when an insurance company, for example, uh, sees that, they know when that number is there, what happened, and then they'll assign a payment to it. But what we find is that on the payment side of it, the, the outcomes, even though ostensibly the payment is color neutral or colorblind or gender, ne gender neutral, we get these disparate outcomes. One of the concerns is that that's going to get worse 
because of some potential changes in how uh, physicians are paid. So they're going to move to uh, what we call bundled payments and uh, potentially create some risk situations where we think that health disparities are going to get worse. And so we've been working on that. Have, have you kind of looked at any of that in terms of the, the payment policy? And, and has that been part of your work and, and as, as a lawyer and some of the work that you're doing? Primarily in the, in the context of um, teaching and researching, I've looked at the issue of payments, although I have some cases that I'll talk to you about that were a direct reflection of payment policies. But let's start with the notion that in healthcare, most people, to get access to care, depend upon what we call a third-party payer or insurer. It's one of the unique areas in our economy where people don't go in with their own checkbook and, and try to purchase the services that they need, so they rely upon third-party payers. And so in this area, in order to get access to care and for the provider or, or seller of the service to get paid, they have to comply with the standards and guidelines of the third-party payer. Now, a third-party payer could be a private insurer, it could be a government insurer. Um, and so the dominant ones in our society and country are Medicare, which covers people over primarily over 65, although some with disability, and Medicaid, which covers people who meet a certain poverty level. So both of those large insurers, government insurers, have to determine how they're going to pay for the service and what service they're going to pay for. So in the good old days, from the perspective of both physician and patient, um, they would provide the service, and they would submit the bill, and they would be paid. It was called fee-for-service. And so over a period of time, the insurer might, third-party payer might say, you're doing too many, uh, you're doing too many uh, bowel surgeries, or you're doing too many... Um, knee replacements, and so we're going to... We're ordering too many x-rays. Or too many x-rays, et cetera. So we'll put you off our list or we'll control you. But that was the way they tried to control the costs. Well, the government in the 60s decided that that wasn't working, that we need to have somebody in the middle of the uh, decision-making process that would concern him or herself with costs because the hospitals weren't concerned with costs, the doctors weren't concerned with costs, um, because they were looking at giving the best care they could to their patients. And certainly the patient wanted the Mercedes instead of the Ford of health care if they could get it, and if they had insurance, that's what they did. So they started out by saying to managed care companies, why don't you step in the middle here and you determine whether or not something's going to be covered prospectively before it happens, or maybe even while it's happening, and therefore we'll keep our costs down that way. Uh, so then we had that experience for a period of time, and it became unsustainable uh, from a human dignity point of view and from a social welfare point of view, because insurance companies looking primarily at costs started to infringe both upon medical decision-making at the bedside. In other words, the doctor would say, I want you to get Vioxx, and they would say, no, get the generic one or get this alternative drug because it's cheaper. Uh, or they might say, you don't need a CAT scan, you can take uh, an X-ray. And their primary focus was on costs. But what they were doing, it, they were doing it in a way that impinged directly upon the doctor's decision and medical standards. So we evolved from that to the point where 
CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Yeah, that administers the Medicare program and you know a national basis said we've got to come up with another system that would make costs be more controlled. And one way we can do that is to place the burden and responsibility more on the doctors and hospitals so that they have an incentive um, not to provide care, to, to limit the cost of care if they can. And instead of making the mistakes that we made during the managed care era of having somebody directly review what they're deciding and say, no, do it this way, do the x-ray instead of this, let's just do it financially through our payment. And so they came up with this concept of bundled payments, which meant that if you're going in, for example, we're talking about orthopedic disparities, if you're going in for a knee replacement, let's find out what the standard charge should be. How much time should it take to do this? How much time should you be in the hospital? How much time do you need for um, physical therapy? And let's give this bundle of money to the hospital or the doctor and say to them, that you're either going to be penalized or you're going to be rewarded for staying within the boundaries of these payments. But to, but to that point, I think if you look back at those managed care companies, that over time what the criticism became was that, that they only wanted to kind of recruit in the healthier patients. So if you looked at their advertising, for example, uh, would always be an elderly couple that was out walking or exercising, or they'd put their office on the second floor of a building that didn't have an elevator. So if you had mobility issues, you couldn't get there. And so as a consequence, um, they were effectively cherry-picking the patients. They were being paid an average amount but the patient population that they were caring for uh, historically had below average cost. Aren't we concerned that that same thing, if, if we're going to in some ways almost replicate that, we're going to pay an average cost for a patient now for orthopedic surgery, for example, that that same thing will occur with physicians that we saw occur with managed care companies where they're going to only look to take care of those patients who are lower cost. And so they're going to look. And I, and I think, you know, the term that we hear used here is, is cherry picking or lemon dropping. Do you have that concern? Yeah, would you explain what, what, you, what you, those terms mean to you? Well, cherry picking or lemon dropping, it's, it's kind of the flip side of a coin uh, either way you look at it. But that if I'm going to be paid, let's say they come in and say, on average, we're going to pay $1,000 for this procedure. And uh, that's going to cover a period of time uh, preoperatively, interoperatively, and postoperatively. And, and that $1,000 has to cover all the care. And then I look and I have uh, two patients come in my door. One is a, a healthy uh, 50-year-old male uh, in good shape, no uh, you know, medical conditions, Caucasian, lives in a suburban community, and then uh, in need of that service. And I have another patient who comes in who's uh, perhaps African-American, overweight, maybe has diabetes. uh, And I'm thinking, well, if I do the procedure on the patient who is African-American and diabetic, 
they may have to stay in the hospital longer. They may require uh, additional post-operative services. And I've only got $1,000 to pay for that. So I'm probably going to lose money on that patient. But if I take care of the other patient, uh, they're going to be in and out. Maybe I can do it as outpatient surgery. It's not even going to require a day in the hospital. And I'm going to get that $1,000 and I'm going to make money. So I'm going to tell the, the patient, I think, is going to be, I'm sorry, you're not a good candidate for this procedure, so you don't even get the procedure, and I'm only going to take, and that over time, I'm only going to care for those who are healthy that I know I can bring in under the cost. So somebody the government comes in and looks at my quality data and says, gee, you're doing a great job. All your patients, you're getting them out of the hospital quickly, great outcomes, great quality. We're going to give you a bonus. But meanwhile, there's a whole community over here that we're not even looking at because they're not getting into the front door because they have either social determinants of health or comorbid medical conditions that cause them to be a less attractive financial patient. And so I think that's the real almost insidious part of what's happening is we've shifted, we're shifting this financial incentive to the clinician, and we're not even going to know about some of these things that are happening because simply people aren't going to get access to health care. Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree with that, and I think it's important to point out the difference between even from a ethical uh, point of view of what's going on now from what went on with the managed care companies because the managed care companies were doing the selecting. They were deciding who they would insure, and they were going after them. And so that if a physician provided care under that insurance policy, they had to comply with that. What's going on now with the CMS model of payment is that they are making the physicians and the hospitals make the decisions about who, how to comply with the best uh, profit approach to the problem. So it's even more insidious because what we rely on in society in America for care and, and quality care uh, when we go to the doctor is that unlike the ordinary seller of goods and services, we expect that doctor to have our best interests in mind so that when they make a recommendation of stay in the hospital or don't stay in the hospital, they're different from the car salesperson because we know the car salesperson is only looking at the product and making a profit. But the fiduciary duty and the nature of trust that comes into play with doctors is that we want to believe as patients that cost may be a consideration, but it's not the driving consideration. So that when an insurance company says, here's a pot of money, and you get to keep more of this pot of money if you keep the cost down, the risk is that they begin to pervert or impinge on that ordinary professional duty. That's what doctors went to, to most of them went to to medical school for in the first place. And, and in that regard, I think we have to also look at hospitals. Although hospitals are institutions, they don't have that direct human connection making that decision. So they're more like the profit-making or surviving entity, uh, but they still have to make the same decisions because they're incurring the cost. So that when you use a system like that, what you're saying is costs have to be taken into account. We're not going to make the decisions about who you treat or how you treat. And unlike the private insurers or the managed care, 
Medicare has to take everybody over 65. Their, their eligibility is determined by law. Same thing with Medicaid. So they're not going to limit costs by saying you're not going to give care. What they're going to say is, physician, you decide who you give care to. So that then shifts the burden to the doctor. And I'll tell you an interesting case, which I think is very important to think about. Um, it wasn't under Medicare. It was under managed care. But it was a case called Wickline where a woman went into the hospital um, had vascular surgery, and the doctor who was treating her decided after three days that unlike the ordinary three-day stay, she needed to stay there for another five, six days. Managed care company reviewed and refused, said, no, she can go home. They did what was called a concurrent review. She went home, and she and her husband are at home uh, watching her leg turn blue not understanding what's going on until finally after four or five days, they decide we better get back to the hospital. And they go back to the hospital, uh, and by that time it's too late to save her leg. Now, why do I bring this up? Because I think it shows, and then more importantly in terms of the law case, the court ended up holding in the case, a California case that was a medical malpractice case, that the doctor still remained responsible for making a medical decision, notwithstanding the financial pressures and, and rejection that the insurance company had made. They said, however, that if the insurance company's policies corrupted medical judgment, that that would be going too far, so that potentially the insurance company could be held liable. But think of yourself as a doctor in that situation. You've already made your medical determination. Uh, and then you decide that you're going to try to get payment for the patient. You find out you can't, and then you decide, well, they're the boss. I'm going to send this patient. And think about it from the perspective of the patient. My doctor told me he wanted me to stay, but then he told me to go home. Um, now I don't have a leg. I mean, I'm making it very crude because that's the bottom line. So that's the danger. I mean, if, if I know, for example, that keeping this patient in the hospital an extra four days is going to result in more costs, then I'm in, in, my incentive is to get them out, just like the insurance company had that incentive of managed care, and just like the hospital. The hospital said, who's going to pay for this? Um, you don't have a justification. So, yeah. Now, here's the thing, I think, Bill. We talk, used to refer to socioeconomic factors, so that we all know that patients aren't cookie cutters. And so they come from communities, they come from environments, they come in with histories that make them different. And so that care has to be tailored toward them. So what we started talking about in the beginning is, suppose we get the data and we find out that a high percentage of the people who are going home early or are not even being treated now fall into various groups. African-American, Latino, um, women, um, rural, whatever group it is that we're using, and we say, something's wrong here. This payment system seems to be one of the factors, if it's not the sole factor, but a significant determinant uh, of what's going on here, whereby the bad outcomes or the denials of care are accumulating in certain communities. Now we've identified what we would consider socioeconomic factors that are influencing the outcome, and they're factors that the provider has no control over. I mean, if housing is the problem, if not having a job is a problem, if not having transportation is a problem, 
and that's what causes the person to be more costly or more risky, the healthcare provider doesn't have any control over that, and yet you're penalizing them. Yeah, and that's one of the things that uh, a, a number of people are writing about now is that we we are shifting this risk to the provider, but we're holding them accountable uh, for things over which they have no control. And so that that is what partly contributes to this uh, lemon dropping, cherry picking uh, situation. So <clears throat> Movement is Life uh, has been working on this and, and uh, has some legislation that they've been promoting called the Equality in Medicare and Medicaid Treatment Act. Uh, are you familiar with that? And, yes. and um, can you talk about that a little bit and what you kind of think that, that, you know, that might be able to try and do? Yeah, that's, a, I think, a very important proposed bill that hopefully will get serious consideration and passage because all it's really doing at its core is asking the CMS, when it looks at what's happening with the provision of care, to take into account whether or not there is a disparity, an impact in terms of certain groups, so that that information will be available so that when one begins to make payment policy decisions, you can take that into account. Um, to ignore it is to continue a financial system that perpetuates disparate outcomes. To ignore it means that either it's not important to you or that it doesn't have enough importance to warrant the kind of effort that it takes to come up with strategies to address it. So I, I think it's a very balanced and fair bill proposal because it's saying, let's do this transparently. Yeah, I think uh, so often uh, in the health policy arena, we we discover problems after the fact. You know, we look, a researcher goes in, somebody goes in and analyzes and says, hey, you know, did you realize that, you know, we can identify that, you know, from point A to point B, this adverse outcome occurred. And so we can identify that that occurred here. And I think what uh, the Equality in Medicare and Medicaid Services Act is saying is, all right, let's try to prevent that from happening. When, when we're designing these models, when we're looking at whether it's a bundled payment or some type of value-based payment, let's consider the possibility that this could have an adverse impact on individuals based on gender, race, ethnicity, geography, whatever. And, and maybe we can build something into the model to prevent that from happening. You know, we've just seen so many examples. We were talking earlier today uh, about when hospitals, uh, they changed the way we were going to pay hospitals back in the uh, mid-1980s. And suddenly they discovered that uh, rural hospitals, uh, because they were low volume for a variety of different reasons, uh, couldn't fare well. And those were all based on average payments. And so what did we see? We saw the closure of rural hospitals all around the country. And then we had to scramble to try and uh, put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And I think what, what we're saying here is let's not rep uh, replicate those. Let's, if in the design phase, in the evaluation phase, let's consider the possibility that these things are going to happen. We already see it now. We have no reason to believe that this is suddenly going to solve health disparities. So maybe we can design and build things in. You know, now, I would ask a question because yeah. I know you're an expert on rural um, community and healthcare. Um, how do you see this proposal benefiting or helping at all 
uh, with disparities that might exist in between rural and urban? Well, I think, um, as I mentioned, we, you know, when you move to average payments for uh, hospitals, we saw that rural hospitals uh, did not fare well. And I think the same reasons that rural hospitals didn't fare well is why some rural providers would be challenged here. And it really is a function of volume, you know, that, that very often, you know, if you have enough people, uh, you, you can make a lot of things work because it's going to balance out actuarially of, you know, I'm going to have enough winners and enough, you know, to offset whatever losers I might have financially. Um, in rural communities, you don't necessarily have that nice little bell curve of patients of, you know, unhealthy and healthy and so forth. Uh, and so you, 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 you can't have that situation. And so, you know, we already know that, that surgical specialty care is a challenge. I mean, we've worked hard as a country to try and get primary care. Um, this is going to make specialty care even more difficult. And the individuals are going to have to travel. Um, you know, they may have the, they may have great insurance. Um, but, you know, they, they need to go three hours to the nearest hospital. You know, you're in Philadelphia, and maybe I'm up uh, in north-central Pennsylvania, and I to go to Philadelphia, one of the great teaching hospitals in Philly, is, you know, three and a half, four hours. Well, okay, I get the surgery. Now what? Well, now where do I get discharged to? So it's like, uh, you know, I don't have, I'm not going to go. I won't have the surgery. And so you see that same phenomena of people not getting access to care. Um, it may not be because of economics. It may not be because of the color of their skin or their gender, but simply the geography says, I'm sorry, you just don't have it. And so, you know, what can we do to try and address some of those things to make those services uh, more accessible? Um, one of the things that a lot of folks are looking at that I think has great promises, telehealth as an example. To say, okay, we're going to discharge you back home, but now you're going to be able to, you know, talk to the surgeon in Philadelphia and have a communication. We'll give you a camera. You can show them how the wound uh, is healing and, and answer questions. So even though you're four hours away, uh, you know, drive time, you know, you're immediately available because now we can have a telecommunication uh, consult um, that we weren't able to have. So how do we use technology to say, all right, well, that's going to cost something. So if you got a patient who's in a rural area and we go back to that early example of $1,000, okay, we're going to pay you $1,200. Uh, because you're going to have to take advantage of technology, but it's going to be better, and then you're not going to have the disincentive to see that patient, and that patient is not going to have the disincentive. So how do we adjust the payment model to take into account that, okay, you may not be able to go home. We're going to have to put you in a skilled nursing facility. You don't have a SNF close by or a home health agency close by. So we'll adjust the payment model to take that into account um, when we, instead of just paying everybody a flat rate $1,000, we're going to adjust that based on those factors over which you have no control. Yeah, it's interesting that you point out the problems with post-hospital care because I saw a, a two-year study of the mandatory uh, kind of bundle payments for total knee replacements was in New England Journal of Medicine 2019. And the first part of the conclusions they offered were that it did not show evidence of more bad outcomes or lower quality of care. But they focused on things like deaths and, and, and other kinds of serious adverse reactions. And then they noted that the way in which the hospitals responding to this bundled payment had saved money was to count or cut down on um, physical therapy in-house or other kinds of post-surgical treatments. So again, I think looking at the consequences, one has to say, given socioeconomic factors, 
that there may be some serious disparities. So if, for example, you say to a person who's just had a knee replacement, you, we can't give you rehab here. We're going to send you to another place. You have to be concerned about the quality or that you don't, you're not entitled to rehab at all. So I was talking to a physical therapist who said that she had seen a marked increase of people coming to her three months later um, as a result of having surgery and not having physical therapy. Uh, and they're coming in on, chain, on crutches and other things that, in her experience, they would not have had had they had the physical therapy right away. So that raises some important questions. One, if we're talking about cost control, are we really doing a fair job because we're not looking at the costs associated with not having care afterwards? Right. So, if, for example, if you if, if socioeconomic factors, if you live in a house where you don't have someone who lives with you or if you have someone... Uh, who doesn't have the capacity to take off from work, there's a cost to that if that person is there for two weeks at home and needs to be cared for and they're not having physical therapy. So I think that, again, we're talking about transparency, looking at what are the intended consequences, what are the actual consequences, and do those consequences that are real, uh, are they justified, are they good policy? And we won't know that if we don't get the information. Yeah, I think one of the you know one of the one of the things that's interesting in this whole discussion is it's pretty well recognized that um, this idea of comor comorbid conditions and how that can contribute to added costs. So if you're comorbid, what right, does that, mean? that means it's you have other things that are wrong with you. So for example, you may be obese or have diabetes or arthritis or high blood pressure, and so all of those factors could affect. Uh, the outcome of surgery. So if you're going to go in for knee surgery, you know, if you're obese, if you have high blood pressure, that may affect certain things. And so there's a pretty well recognized uh, that, that that can add cost. And so a lot of the payment policy, if you look at how an insurance company, you know, if you have a high number of diabetes, the patients who have diabetes who enroll in your plan will pay you a little bit more because we know. But one of the things that's not as well recognized are this is this idea of social determinants of health, these non-health uh, factors necessarily that are also impacting on the cost of that patient, and saying we need to think about those as far as part of the payment policy, not just those measurable or diagnostic components, but. To your point, is there a support system at home? Is there a spouse who's able to uh, help provide care or children who can come? Um, or does that mean we're going to have to have a home health agency? Or you're in the third floor of an apartment building and you don't have an elevator, and so you know, you're not going to be able to get up and down or do the exercise or get to the PT. Uh, you're relying on public transportation. Or you live in a neighborhood where it's a high-crime neighborhood and going out and doing an evening walk to get some exercise is not realistic because of safety reasons. All of those non-health factors impact on the outcome and to the extent that we're now going to hold the physician or the hospital financially accountable for the outcome and, and say, well, wait a minute, all those other... So I think part of the challenge is how do we build that into the payment model to create a more level playing field? So the doctor says, okay, I don't care whether you're a Caucasian male from you know, suburban Philadelphia or you're you know, a Hispanic woman who's obese from inner city Philadelphia. Economically, 
I have, you know, there's no incentive or disincentive either way. I'm going to now go back to the point you made earlier is making a clinical decision based on this procedure and and your, you know, whether it's a good procedure. And I'm not going to be influenced by the financial uh, ramifications of that decision. And yet you can understand why CMS is concerned about costs and building a sustainable system would say, okay, let's make sure that we don't have people being put out of the hospital and then being readmitted unnecessarily. So let's penalize the hospitals that have higher readmissions. And so there's been a study done that shows that if you ignore socioeconomic factors, um, then you see that they're imposing penalties on hospitals with more costs because of readmissions. But if you factor in those socioeconomic factors, then you would not see this as something that's penalized. You know, I, I like to think about this analogy as to schools, you know, so that if you're going to penalize a teacher or a school system because they're taking care of the neediest kind of students, then what you're doing is you're discouraging them from doing that. Uh, whereas really the opposite should be true. If we're looking at making the analogy, you may be able to punch a hole in my analogy. But, you know, if, if you really wanted to build a payment system for improving the overall education as well as health system, you would say, let's give the most money to the people who take on the most challenging students and produce the best result. Um, so I don't, I don't know how we get there, but I know that we need information about the consequences in order to make a, a rational and fair policy. Well, I'm, as you're telling that and making that analogy, I'm, I'm smiling here because uh, my daughter is a school teacher and uh, she teaches in a, a Title I school and they have a large uh, Title I, Title I are, are, it's a large population, low income children who are on school lunch programs. Uh, and it's a school that had actually lost its accreditation and they were recruiting teachers uh, to come in and try and help turn that school around. And so she took that opportunity. Um, and we've had this very conversation. You know, I've talked to her about some of the challenges in, in healthcare and these social determinants of health and how it's impacting. And she said, well, that's exactly what she deals with as a teacher. You know, she sits there in the classroom and she has kids from different backgrounds, some whose parents are supportive and helpful. Some kids are coming to school hungry and, you know, you know, did they even get a good night's sleep? But she is a teacher is being evaluated and and they have to take tests. And, you know, if a certain percentage of the kids in that class don't pass, then she doesn't get, you know, the, you know, she gets a bad score and is evaluated as a bad teacher. But how much of that is due to factors that are beyond her control as a teacher? And, uh, you know, how do you build that in? So I think your analogy is spot on. I think that, that these areas where all these factors can impact outcomes and to the extent that we're evaluating people and saying you're good or you're bad or your quality is good or quality is bad without taking all those things into consideration. We're doing it as a service to teachers and to health professionals. Yeah, and we call those safety net hospitals. Mm-hmm. They're safety net because we're saying you're the ones who have to stop them from hitting the ground and dying. And so if people are in those areas, they're in an urban area, like I teach at Temple University, Temple Hospital is in a North Philadelphia, which has a a really large population of people who are poor and don't have jobs and have all the other kinds of problems. So the issue is if you have a payment policy that penalizes readmissions and doesn't take into account, I'm not saying you reward low quality. You know, if they're not doing a good job, then we should make sure that they don't get paid. But if they're doing a good job, you should take into account that they, unlike the hospital that's in 
uh, another community. Like sometimes I'll go to a hospital out in the in the suburbs, uh, and I'll be in the in into the treatment room before they even ask about insurance. Okay, so that that hospital is used to having a patient population where they know they're ultimately going to be paid. They can develop policies. But on the other hand, Temple is treating a high percentage of people who don't have insurance. And if they do have insurance, it's going to be uh, with Medicaid, which pays less as a rate than, than do some of the other insurance. And so you don't want to compound the access the lack of access of people to, to, to health care by saying we're going to penalize you because these folks aren't doing as well. Well, this has been a great conversation, and I have uh, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be with uh, us today. Again, it's been uh, Frank McClellan, and Frank is a uh, professor emeritus at Temple University Law School. Uh, he's uh, written a couple books that I would encourage you to, to track down and look at. And the title of your new book again? Healthcare and Human Dignity, Law Health- Matters. And, um, and check it out. So thanks, Frank, for uh, spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it.